Hello and welcome to Show Me The Money, the podcast that looks at the business side of movies and TV. With me, Jess Robinson, and him, Stephen Follows. Thank you for bringing the enthusiasm this week, because as enthusiastic <laughs> as I am, I am very subdued and coughing and whatnot, so you may have to bring all the enthusiasm for the whole episode. I can do that. That's my job. It's totally <laughs> fine. I'll bring all the enthusiasm and absolutely no knowledge at all. <laughs> oh, cool. Well, then between us, we'll make up one person, one enthusiastic, yeah, knowledgeable it's person. perfect. Yeah, I, I wish to say, I'm not unenthusiastic. I just, I'm a bit run down and I got a cold from being run down and then I think I got run down from getting a cold and I think it's cyclical. Yeah. But um, very I'm very tricky. present. I brought my good. numbers. That's good. Uh, I have a little um, dog. Brian, the podcast dog, is on my lap today. Um, he's so far, he's being a good boy and he said that he will be a good boy. But sometimes he lies. So there might be a, <laughs> a third member of the podcast that you might hear today, guys. <laughs> good. Um so, first story, Spike Lee is the latest director to enter the NFT space with an upcoming collection of Ethereum artwork based on stills from his 1986 film, She's Gotta Have It. Oh, NFTs. <laughs> I, oh, they're not going really... anywhere, Jess. I'm sorry, You're in your oh. dreams, you're going to be hearing NFTs, NFTs. Oh. They're absolutely not going anywhere. Um, so, ta- what, huh? what, why? <laughs> Tell me <laughs> what about this? it. It's so funny to think about this. So this is his first film, black and white film from 1986, called She's Got to Have It. And he is selling um, NFTs, about 4,000 of them, just under, that are stills from the movie, mostly involving his own, uh, the character that he played. So he Mm. uh, wrote, produced, edited, and directed the movie, and he's in it. Um, And uh, what's so interesting is that when he made that, like he was a sort of early filmmaker trying to get his money together. It was hard to do, to flash forward all these years later and to to hear that they're being sold as non-fungible tokens to fund something else. is It's one of those things where, you know, with time travelers get put, you know, in movies and they get pulled into the future and it's just <laughs> incompatible, just can't understand it. <laughs> and I think it's one of those where this weird indie film from the, oh, not weird, but this sort of yeah, low-budget indie film from the 80s is now being at the forefront of modern technology. But um, yeah, so he's, uh, Spike Lee is awesome. He's a, an awesome filmmaker. And also he does a lot of stuff for the film community. He's, a, I think he's even a, a tenured professor at NYU. I know he's uh, very high up there and does, and, and lots of the students, I haven't met him, but lots of the students I've worked with have said that he was very supportive, if a little harsh, but in a supportive okay. way towards their films and things. And so uh, this is another project where I think he's doing something for the community. Um, because it's not actually funding one of his films. He has, in the past, been at the forefront of other forms of funding, like Kickstarter and things like that. But this one is for a thing called The Visible Project, which is ironic because NFTs are, well, I guess they're visible. They're not Mm -hmm. tangible. Yeah, okay, I'll give him that. It is a project (laughs) visible, I guess, in that you can see it with your eyes on a screen. Um, But they're calling it the world's first democratized content uh, incubator. So that must help, Jess, when you're trying to work out what this NFT is. It's the world's yeah, first democratized. Absolutely. That's that's really helpful. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so not, the idea... it's not giving me a headache at all. <laughs> <laughs> um there, there's a, a famous saying about quantum mechanics, which is if, if you think you understand quantum mechanics, you don't. And I think it's like right. that with NFTs. If you think you're fully on top of this and you fully understand what's going on, you don't. Wow. Um so yeah, so he is selling these NFTs, which are basically um, pictures, but you yeah. only, but it, just through complicated math and and transparency, only one person can actually own any one of them. So they're actually yeah. you can't copy and paste them. And you se- he sells them, and most of that money goes into this project, and then this project allows people 
only people with tokens, so it's a bit, with the people who've bought one, so it's a bit insular, but still, people to apply to make short films with the money raised from selling those tokens. So they're collecting money in, and then the community can vote for what shorts they want to fund. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he will give, and you get one voting right per wallet rather than one per token. And that seems like a very small detail, but it's interesting because one of the claims of cryptocurrency and NFTs and the new world we're moving into is that it's democratizing everything. But in practice, a lot of them, the most of the coins are held by the people who came in early on. So we have a different strata of mega, mega wealthy controlling most of the power the way that we perhaps do in the normal world. Whereas mm-hmm. this actually is trying to make it more democratic. It's trying to make it so that whatever is funded is what the community wants. And so, yeah, and if so if you own an NFT, one of these NFTs, you, you buy it. If you own one of them, you can submit your project to be one of the ones that may be funded. Um, you can vote for which one should be funded. I'm sure you'll vote for your own. Yeah. Uh, then you get to, there's an event he's going to hold, an in-person festival ne- early next year. Um, you get to go to digital events, which I don't know if that's just an email. I don't know what a digital event is. <laughs> yeah, what maybe is it's a that? Zoom. A live stream, maybe? Maybe this is a digital event. Does, it feel, does, does this pod feel like a digital event to you? It feels like a pyjama event to me right now. <laughs> I, would, I think you might sell more NFTs. We need to get NFTs done, created for your um, Edinburgh show. I think yeah! Okay, Which well, is on sale now. Legacy. Please come. Thank you. <laughs> I, want, I want commission. Um, but also, yeah, and then there's a private online community and stuff. So it's a, it's a good idea. And it's not a million miles away from the Midnight Movie Club, the MMC, which we talked about about a month ago. Mm-hmm. Um, that was from Matthew Lillard, the actor. Although the differences are interesting because for that one, they were getting the community, they were going to make one film and the community would get to vote on things. And I, if I remember rightly, they didn't say exactly what, but what you could imagine, it could be things like uh, costume or character or props or something like that. This one isn't that. This one is saying get to vote on which one goes forward to the next round of funding, but fundamentally it's still being created by an artist and mentored by Spike Lee and other people. So this one is keeping more of the artist at the at the core of the decision making, even if the community is choosing what to fund, whereas the concept of the Midnight Movie Club was that filmmakers get to, sorry, the, the people who are voting get to choose all the details, Right. although they were only making one film and this one's probably going to make, it's going to develop 20 or 30 of them. So um, yeah, kind of interesting to see where it goes. And um, what's interesting also is that this is, we were joking about like, it was impossible to predict in 1986 that this would happen. And yeah. that has actually some consequences because Tarantino, Quentin Tarantino, I think last year tried to do something similar where he tried to have every frame of Pulp Fiction be an NFT that he could sell. And he faced a lawsuit from Miramax because really? the company that made the film. Well, because Miramax owned the rights, which just because you oh, were the director doesn't mean oh, you own the rights. Yeah. So whereas Spike Lee actually owns the rights to his movie, probably because he was not very well known when he made it. He made it on a tiny budget of like $175,000. And so probably everyone was ignoring him. He was like, right, I'm going to go and do this. And by consequence, he he owns all of it. And so he can do this. So one of the things that lawyers are always interested to try and get in contracts is to think about how you can protect rights that you can't even conceive of now. Mm. So, you know, you can imagine where before... TV broadcasts, they didn't know how to write in contracts, or if it's ever broadcast on TV or home video. And 
the concept of trying to predict what an NFT would be is, is impossible. So how do you, you know, the legal contracts you have to write to say, I own everything in all universe and all media yet to be invented. That is um, really, do you know what? When I did the uh, dreaded uh, ITV talent show, uh, which we do not speak of. Um, I'm definitely but, asking more questions about that. But yeah, for, for, put, put in it for now. Uh, in the, <laughs> in the um, contract with uh, that I had to sign um he who shall not be named uh also asked for rights um which sort of expanded out into the universe and I couldn't believe <laughs> they had used universe but they had well, well I, I just think they haven't used the phrase universe or universes yet to be discovered because if with all these oh. movies about multiverses are true then they've been very limited. Oh, they've missed a trick. They really have. I mean the <laughs> ultimate universe money way. But yeah, because there's no harm in them writing that. They do write that a lot. They write, you know, and and some contracts say the world and some say the universe. Right now that seems ridiculous. It does. But if we, but if we end up having places on the moon, do you have the rights to, you know, it's not in the world. Wow. So yeah, but it's really interesting because that's a problem that you kind of this is this is the sort of Donald Rumsfeld known unknowns. So let's let's try and unpick this. In 1986, you couldn't predict NFTs, but you could predict that there would be a derivative form of media that you can't predict. So you could say anything that comes off of this. But right. there's one more level of <laughs> of complete confusion and unknown unknowns. And this is a, another story that happened around NFTs and, and movies or TV, actually, this week. So Seth Green, yes. he is developing a TV series uh, called White Horse Tavern. And it is based around an NFT that he bought from the Board, Board Ape Yacht Club. Yeah. And this is, this is the, probably the most famous set of NFTs and the ones that will raise the most money. And if you've ever seen this sort of ugly pictures of monkeys. And one of the interesting things about when you bought one of these, and I think he bought it for, well, I think it's valued at the moment at around $200,000. Mm -hmm. He bought it. And one of the bits of small print about the ownership of it is that you get the rights, the copyright, essentially, you get to do anything commercial with it if you own it. So that's part of the reason why there are so many NFT sort of like T-shirts and merchandise with those sets of images, because whoever owns it owns the copyright. So he owns the copyright to this image. He's developing this TV show, and it involves live action and different forms of animation, and he's in it. And there was a trailer released recently. But here's the rub. He had it stolen. So his <sighs> NFT was fished. Again, we're getting deeper and deeper into the kind of absurdist world. Yeah. His NFT, someone sent him, uh, I don't know the exact details, but what if it follows them, all of the other ways that people have been stolen, somebody probably sent him a link that he clicked on. And yeah, how to enlarge that. your penis. Exactly, yes. All those emails you keep sending me, please stop sending them, <laughs> Jess. I'm not coming to your Edinburgh show, and that's not how you're going to get me to buy tickets. I've bought too many already. Um, by the way, that's a great name for an Edinburgh show. But anyway, we'll... <laughs> We'll, we'll do that next year. That's next year's. That's next year's. Um, yes, so presumably something like he clicked on a link or something like that and instantly it removed four NFTs that he owned and put them on the marketplace and whoever Shit. did that instantly stole, uh, sold, uh, sold them to someone else who bought them for $200,000. And so not only has Seth Green had four things stolen from him, mm -hmm. he now no longer owns the copyright which is the underlying rights he needs to make the TV show. Right. So he now has what in the film industry we would call an orphaned work in the sense that he has a TV show that he's made but can't release because oh, he can't no. prove that he has the copyright because actually he doesn't have the copyright anymore. 
Well, so, how do we find out who got it? Well, you see, that's not the hard bit. See, every, by the way, everything about this makes no sense. And so right. you, ask us, you ask a question that might feel, seem silly, but the answer will be so, like, left field. We know exactly who's got it. <gasps> because one of the things about NFTs is that it's all of the um, purchases and sales are done in public on what's called the blockchain. So anyone can look up and see what happened to it. Now, you don't necessarily know the name and address of who's got it. You, you know what wallet it went to. And so uh, when it was stolen, it went to one wallet who then immediately stole it, stole, sold it to someone else called Darkwing84. That's his <laughs> handle. And this person's on Twitter and said, oh, I didn't know it was stolen, but it's mine now. And right. my understanding of US law is that actually he has the rights to it because he didn't know it was stolen. But if he did know, then there's it's quite hard to protect that. But there's no way of undoing it. Like if you have credit card fraud, your credit card company can give you the money back. But because of the way these NFTs are supposed to be decentralized, there's not supposed to be one authority that because that's what they're railing against. They're trying not to have banks or governments or whatever. So there's no way of getting it back unless this guy gives it back to Seth. Wow. Yeah. So and. Is there a way of chasing the baddie that stole it? Oh, um, yeah, I'm calling him a baddie. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, be be more gender inclusive. He, she, they. Um, okay, it, probably it was a he. But let's 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 be more gender a baddie inclusive. Baddie is a baddie is all sorts of people. Yeah, but you said he. So did I say? Yeah, we we should cancel you, Jess. I'm afraid. Oh no, I didn't. Oh, I know. No. Sorry, we do so well as well. Um, but yeah, so we, we don't know necessarily who. Um, we know that the 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 wallet that it went to, um, what the name of that was, and then it was sold to this person, Darkwing eighty four, and this person, Darkwing eighty four, is a, is around on Twitter and says, "Oh look, I've got it." And Seth Green has said, "Look, you need to reach out to us. We we should chat about it." Um, I actually I, I I noted down one of Seth Seth Green's tweets. He said. A buyer who purchased stolen art with real money and refuses to return it is not legally entitled to exploitation usage of the underlying uh, IP. It will go to court, but I prefer to meet Darkwing84 before that. It seems we have a lot in common. So now they're in this weird position where fundamentally Darkwing84 is probably going to say, I bought this on the marketplace with money. I did not know it's stolen. It is mine. I have the underlying rights. Seth Green's going to say, it was stolen, you probably knew, and you can't have the rights to something that was stolen, and so they'll go to court. And that will be bad for everyone, because I'd be surprised if Darkwing84 has enough, has as much money as Seth Green. But at the same time, Seth Green's in a real predicament, because he's got a TV show that he can't do anything with. Because even it's been made, there's a trailer out there already, but you oh, no. can't, you need the underlying rights. Right. And the only person that's really benefited is whoever did the fishing, because they immediately flipped it and made the money. So oh, it's fascinating. It's weird, isn't Mind it? Mind-bending and super fascinating. Weird. Yeah. What do you think will happen? I mean, it's hard to know what will happen here. What's happened? What's happened a lot is that people who've had their NFTs stolen have appealed to the community, but there's no real obvious recourse. It's possible to rewrite all the rules, but that that goes against the whole principle of NFTs. So what probably happens is that people who've had things stolen, everyone just goes, "Well, tough." But actually, that's a real flaw in, in a system. You know, we bank fraud and things like that. That's why we have to do all those complicated things with apps and our faces and passwords to prevent bank, bank fraud. Yeah. Um, and there is no such mechanism for NFTs. And I, I don't understand the tech enough, but one of the phishing uh, routes I read about involved sending 
uh, an NFT that has a sort of not a virus, but it's for the sake of the story. Let's say it's a virus. It's actually a bit of code, but into your into someone's wallet, so that you can't prevent them from doing it. It's like they put a bit of letter through your door. But the second you open it, it instantly clears out all your NFTs. So it's but it's you don't even have to double click on it. It just has to load up. Mm. So it's almost like someone puts a letter through your letterbox, and if you even look at the outside of the letter, everything in your house is stolen, and you oh can't get it back. Oh my god. And so that is a major flaw, in especially if you're using that as the underlying rights to a very expensive TV show, movie, or whatever. So you can imagine this is going to scare off a lot of high-end investors and studios and stuff for a long time, because this is a sort of Death Star-style hole uh, right in the heart of, of something that is kind of otherwise cool and interesting. Um, yeah. So... That, I mean, that's not really going to affect Spike Lee's thing because he, as I said, he owns the rights and he's yeah. selling them. People could still s- steal them, but all they're going to get if they steal it is the NFT and the voting rights. They're mm-hmm. not going to be able to blow the whole project up. But um, yeah, we're entering a whole different world. This is why NFTs are going nowhere, even if they're not changing your world today. Um, they are not going anywhere. Wow. Well, other I than that, your wallet without your permission. I can exclusively reveal now. That I am Darkwing84. <laughs> <laughs> and it's all been a bluff. <laughs> God, I'd be so impressed. Wouldn't I'd be you? terrified. I would be so scared. Because I could you, be you... telling the truth now. God, this is so clever. This is like double indemnity. You're confessing now. And then yeah. when no one does anything about it, you can yeah. say, well, clearly. Oh, I tried, genius, Seth. Jess. I tried. Also, I'll sell this it is to the, you for a pound. This is an amazing Edinburgh show for 2024 after you've done the 2023 one, which is, what was it? Come to the show and your penis will be bigger. Yeah. Something penis like that. Penis enlargement. I can't That's remember. right, yes. We'll, 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 talk, we'll talk about making that into a film next week. <laughs> um, the UK cinema chain Curtson is lowering ticket prices at its cinemas in response to what it calls changing customer habits and the cost of living crisis. Thank you, Curtson. Yeah, Curzon. 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 How do you say it? Curzon. Well, it depends how posh you are. Curzon would be the pay that, the way that most of the posh people that go I to it. I say Curzon, and sometimes I put a T in, like Curzon. Why? I don't. I don't. I don't think. think I don't think you'd be let in. It's quite a posh chain. Yeah. I think that maybe they'll, you know, they'll send you down to the Odeon or something. I like the Curzon. Do you? I do. It's got nice seats. It, yeah, it's a, it's a nice place. They also do a nice mix between. They do show mainstream movies, but they also try and curate. Sort of art house films, independent films as well. I was taken on a first date there and it ended up being basically a porn film that I watched with this person. I didn't wow. see him again. It was a bit much. Did they, did, wait, I've got so many questions. Did, do you think they knew how explicit the movie was going to be? I don't know, but I think they were a bit of a wanker. What, okay, what, <laughs> figuratively or literally? Because this changes the story of the day massively. <laughs> There were no stains on the seats, as far as I, I know, and I think we should move swiftly the on. The reason that you really like Curzon is totally that. different to the reason I like Curzon. <laughs> people like you are ruining it for people like me. Um, but it's funny, because I actually think a, a cinema date is a terrible first date, because you sit next to someone and you don't talk to them, and then you watch something, usually not as explicit as that, but that's a good example. If you watch a horror film or something explicit, yeah. you don't know if they're hating it, loving it, and it's such a bold choice. And then you sit there for two hours, and then you come out and say, what do you think of that? And it's just well, weird, right? Unless you go on the other first date that I went on, where the guy did a bloody running commentary all the way through and made smart comments all the way through. I hated him. Which was worse? Um, the one, the one with the talker. 
<laughs> I don't need your opinion. I don't need your running commentary. I don't need your opinion all the way through. I've come to the cinema so I can, it can just, you know, it's, I'm in the world. I'm in, I'm in the film effectively. No. Awful. What an awful, awful idiot. Well, I think the first date cinemas do not go together. I don't I know agree. what the magic number is. The third date onwards, maybe. Like, that's quite a nice, easy date. But, but, um, but yeah, okay, so I have a question for you. How, how much, and this is, there isn't a single answer, so don't worry, you can't get oh, it wrong. good. How much do you think a cinema ticket costs? Oh. £11. I love the certainty and the specificity. <laughs> I could feel it in your voice. You were like, you know what, I'm going to double down. I'm going to go for this. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, not a bad guess. So um, the reason that there isn't one answer is that obviously all cinemas charge different prices at different times for different people, for different movies. There's so many different combinations. Um, and so uh, let me give you a couple of figures. So all the numbers I'm going to give you are true, but they don't seem to sort of add up. Mm-hmm. So in 2020, which is the last time I had data for this because it was pre-pandemic and everything, yeah. just living, the average cinema price, according to the industry, across the whole of the UK was £6.98. That's very Seven cheap. Pounds. That does sound very cheap. In London, it was £8.43, and in Northern Ireland, it was £5.45. Oh. Now, the thing is, yeah, exactly. The reaction I have is the same as you, which is like, really? And the thing is that I looked at how they do their method, and it's not wrong mathematically, but I don't think it's the right method. Because right. what they do is they take the total amount of money um, grossed, and they just divide it by the number of admissions. So that includes kids, includes like the free tickets, it includes like whatever the Meerkat Wednesdays or, you know, free free yeah. um, two for one, all that stuff yeah. combined. So actually it, it's deflating the average price because this is coming from the industry. So as I said, right. it's not false, but it's like there is an impression they're trying to give. Yeah. Um, so I checked it out. How much do you think it would cost to see Jurassic World this Saturday? I'm not. I'm not inviting you, Jess. I've learned that first dates to the cinema with you don't go. Well. So, but it, if you were to buy a single ticket for yourself without anyone else, yeah. uh, to see Jurassic World this Saturday night at the BFI IMAX, how much would it cost? Oh, I think it would be sixteen quid. Well, the good news is you're not a cheap date. Because it's £27.50. <gasps> yep. No. Yep. Uh, so that, I mean, it's a big screen and it's a big movie and it's Saturday night and obviously I, an adult ticket. So I, I pick not that kind of adult movie you, you go and watch at cinemas, but I mean like. That's you know. £40 with popcorn. It is. <laughs> You're going to sit in the popcorn and eat your way out. Um, yeah, and so at the Curzon, the most expensive ticket I could find was to see Top Gun this weekend at the Curzon Mayfair for £17.50. Oh, my Which gosh. is a lot. I mean, it's nice, and it's a good movie and, and all that stuff. And obviously, no one's forcing anyone to pay this. If you want to see it for free on the TV, you wait for a year. If you want to see it cheaper yourself, go on Wednesday night. And so that's what So Curzon have said, that they're going to... Because they've got increased young people going to see going to their cinemas because of the post-pandemic stuff, and also because of cost of living and all those reasons, they're reducing their prices. On uh, so the cheapest it would be for an adult is Monday to Thursdays, eight pounds during the day mm-hmm. and ten pounds in the evening. Very nice. Exactly. So that and that's good. I mean, obviously they make money from the concessions as well. So yeah, I, and I think, their cafe. Well, and they don't share any of that with anybody else in the industry. So the ticket price gets. Split up, you know, some of it goes to, uh, a fifth goes to VAT, mm-hmm. and then 
let's say half, it, it can vary, but about half goes back to the distributor and the sales agent and the filmmakers and stuff like that, and the cinema keep half. But when they sell you a cappuccino for however much it is, I don't know, I don't want to guess. <laughs> 17 get, pounds. Yeah, exactly. You, you might say that, I couldn't possibly comment. Uh, you, they keep all of that. So I'm, this, I'm not suggesting this is cynical at all, and they're doing this to increase you know, box office revenue and, and, you know, they're doing their job really well. But um, what it means is that they will be losing money on the ticket price, but perhaps making money elsewhere. And that will more disproportionately benefit them than the distributors. Um, Right. But I mean, Curzon have got a a, a tricky situation because exactly as we said before, they sit somewhere between mainstream and indie. And never before they really felt it than during the pandemic, the government had via the BFI, had a thing called the Culture Recovery Fund. And they gave out £34 million to hundreds of independent cinemas, but not Curzon. Mm-hmm. And so Curzon said, look, we show indie films, we show art films, we only have 15 or so. They have different numbers and some are opening and closing, but they have around 15 to 20 sites. I can't remember how many they had during the pandemic. So they said we should get some money. Whereas the government said, well, no, you're owned by an American media group who own Landmark Cinemas. They own, they're, they're owned by a company called Cohen Media Group, who, as, a, as an aside, bought them in December 2019. Talk about unlucky timing by a cinema <laughs> chain. I mean, no one could have known, but my God, that's unlucky. Uh, what was that, two months before the pan- global pandemic that shut cinemas for two years? Um, but yeah, so Curzon... Uh, uh, They didn't get money because the government said, well, we're trying to give this money to smaller, maybe single site, um, single screen sites or in more independent chains. They have to draw the line somewhere. You know, the government giving money to view Odeon or Cineworld is not going to work. And Picture House is owned by uh, Cineworld. So Mm -hmm. then one of the next biggest chains would be Curzon. And so Curzon said, we're indie. And the the government said, no, you're not. So they they have an awkward position to be. And so clearly by reducing ticket prices, they're going to try and get you know, more people in the doors rather than just increasing. Because the other option is to increase prices, make it fancier, make it more like the everyman where it's a nicer experience perhaps, but much more expensive. Whereas this move suggests that they're actually going to try and compete for a larger audience paying less. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I'd like to see, you know, if I wonder if other, other chains are going to follow suit. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, you talked about reducing ticket prices a while back. And uh, they'll charge, I mean, ticket, the average ticket price based on that bizarre uh, industry metric of gross divided by admissions has actually been falling for two or three years, only by little bits here and there, mm-hmm. but it's actually been decreasing. It'll probably go back up again. Yeah. Um, but I think what we're going to see, as we talked about on a previous pod, is more dynamic pricing so that maybe the average doesn't change very much, but the high gets higher. You know, the fancy cinemas right. get fancier and they get more and more expensive. And then there'd be more places to have cheaper and cheaper um, tickets. But I mean, I mean, it's not easy running a cinema because you can't control what movies you show because no. you can't show Top Gun a week before it's supposed to come out or whatever. And you spend almost all the time with an empty screen. And then on Saturday night, it's full. And everyone you turn away, you can't sell anything to. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a very hard thing. They have all these places either out of town or they have them in the center of, of cities and they have this great location but they can't do anything else with it, really. I mean, they can run conferences or do the odd video game exhibition or whatever, but fundamentally, they're kind of stuck. So yeah. it's interesting to see Curzon try, and it's the reverse of what most people would have assumed, which is that Curzon would go fancier and more yeah. expensive, Yeah. and actually they're going cheaper. So we'll see. It's, interesting. A, it's an interesting move. 
You mentioned Top Gun then. Um, Top Gun Maverick is our third story. It's bringing older audiences back to movie theatres. Yes, and do you, do you want to know how we're, what we're defining older audiences as? Oh, in this don't. Oh, God, is it something like 40-year-olds? You know what? It's over 35. Oh, you fucking bastards. <laughs> Language, Sorry. Jess- beep, beep, Jessica. Beep. Sorry, everybody. Um, we'll edit those beeps over. For God's sake. This is, you, you know, if you didn't want to sound like an old lady, I don't <laughs> think swearing <laughs> about young people is, is the route to go. I'm just saying. I'm not, I'm not accusing you of anything. I'm just saying. You oh, didn't help your case. I hate them. I hate that. <laughs> okay, now you sound like a child, so that's okay. That's good. That's good. You pulled it back. But um, but yeah, so like 55% of the audience who went to go and see Top Gun Maverick were over 35, um, which is unusual because that's older than the average audience. And this is something that it's a big movie and it came out Memorial Day. So there's a lot of stuff around veterans and stuff, which yeah. you'd assume would go to an older audience anyway. But it also is a, not a superhero movie. And I that's really been, that's been a long time. I'm sorry, I- I'm still bowled over. I thought, like, 70-year-olds. I mean, over 35 does include 70-year-olds. Oh, I'm so upset. <laughs> sorry, please carry on. I- I'll be devastated in silence. <laughs> I-, I doubt it. <laughs> well, we'll see, we'll, we'll see. Um, but, yeah, so there was a-, a survey in 2018 that was looking at different audiences, and they they said the majority of adults over 30 said that they're getting very tired, or li- a little tired or so, of, of too many superhero movies. And that um, actually scales as you go old- older and older. So this uh, you'll be glad to hear this survey did split older and older. So, okay. so of the percentage of people who said... I enjoy superhero movies and plan to continue seeing them in cinemas. So this is the percentage of people who did like superhero movies. It was 50% of people who were 30 to 44. It was another 50% of people who were 45 to 54. But it was only 33% of people 55 to 64 and only 19% of people who are over 65. So as you get older... I mean, this is perhaps not surprising when it comes to what these superhero movies are and who they're pitched at. But it's it basically said as you get older and older, certainly when you go over about 55, there seems to be a real tipping point where people are like, no, I'm out. And so Top Gun Maverick is sort of a magic film in the sense that it's not a superhero movie. It, it harks back to a movie that the older audiences will have seen. Um, and also it's got... You know, it came out Memorial Day. It's got Tom Cruise in it. It's, you know, it's especially very, very good. So it's it's got a very it's had a very, very um, successful time at the box office. So at the point that we're recording this, it's made five hundred and fifty seven million dollars worldwide. Um, and the majority of that at the moment is domestic, which means domestic in the film industry always means North America. So uh, the USA and Canada together. Um, and it was so it's doing very well. It's going to make a lot of money. Uh, apparently, Tom Cruise got paid only about twelve and a half million up front, but he gets ten percent of first dollar gross, which is the best kind of gross. Yeah. And so he'll probably earn I don't know hundred million, personally, based on the current figures, maybe more. Um, but I was looking around. It's actually had a few other impressive things about it. And so I have a sentence here for you, Jess. Now this is a, a, an entirely non-filthy, normal sentence that the film industry would say. And within it, <laughs> within it are three interesting things about Top Gun. So I'm going to tell you the sentence and then I want you to see if you can pick apart what these three things are. So this is Tom Cruise's biggest opening. It's the widest opening we've seen and it has really strong legs. 
So I'll say it again, and then I want you to tell me what you what you can pick out of this okay. from professional film perspective. Right. right. It's Tom Cruise's biggest opening. It's the widest opening we've ever seen, and it has really strong legs. Okay. Tom Cruise's biggest opening is it's um, got the most excitement and anticipation and pre-sales about it. Good guess. Uh, but, oh, do you want, do you want to carry on? Or, okay. No, um, um, I'm not, not going to confirm. I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll do that one now and then we'll come back to it. So, uh, no, but you're on the right thing. So the opening, um, this is Tom Cruise's biggest film when you look at the domestic box office, North America. So this is, it's, nearly, it's made nearly 300 million so far in North America and compares to War of the Worlds, which was number two, which made about 234. And so actually it's the, his biggest movie domestically, but it's not his biggest movie worldwide. Mission Impossible made far more money worldwide. And it's kind of interesting because uh, Mission Impossible, uh, which one was it? Fallout, the most recent one. That made 180 million of its money in China, whereas Top Gun Maverick is not being released in China um, because only a small number of films get released in China. And part of the design of his jacket in the original had the Taiwanese flag on it. And so China says Taiwan is part of China. Taiwan says no, it's not. And so showing the flag is a is an act of political, um, you know, they, they will piss off the Chinese, which means you, your film is definitely not going to get selected <laughs> to be one of the ones shown in China. And yeah. so the original trailer a couple of years ago had the Taiwanese flag painted out. But then most recently, last week or so, there was a trailer in Taiwan for the movie that had it back in. So this film has pissed off the Chinese. And so is, and that's cost it, I mean, let's say it would have made the roughly the same as Mission Impossible. Who knows? But that was that would have been two hundred million dollars. So that political decision. I mean, I don't know whether they'd ever be able to convince the Chinese to have it in there because it's about U.S. military might. So maybe it was a losing battle from the start. Mm-hmm. But um, but yeah. So it's Tom Cruise's biggest opening domestically, but not internationally. So the, yeah. So go back to our sentence. This is Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise's biggest opening. It's the widest release we've ever seen. It's, it's, it's the widest opening we've ever seen, and it's got really strong legs. So the first bit's done. Mm. What else can we p- pick apart from that sentence? The widest opening we've ever seen is it's um, uh, in cinemas everywhere. Or, yeah, and in all the countries, and widest. Widest, It's it's got a wide range of audiences, ages and things. And... Uh, it's got legs. That is, it's going to run and run. You, you know what? I'll give that to you. That, that's pretty much <laughs> right. Okay, so I'll, I'll, I'll do the, I'll do the sort of what you said, but I'll say it differently. Yeah, but um, in an so articulate the, way. Yeah, as some, in a, someone that's had a coffee. Do it as someone <laughs> that's had a coffee. I'm on my third cup of tea today, so yes. Are you? I've I'm only buzzing. had one. Um, yeah. So the widest opening. So in the US, it opened on. Four uh, four thousand five hundred and thirty-four screens. So four and a half thousand screens. Uh, sorry, theaters. So I think that's sites because you can count by screen or by site in the sense that one cinema can have ten screens, right? Um, but this is the largest opening ever um, of a movie, and so like this is this is quite significant because it, oh this is and it's Tom Cruise's uh, biggest opening, and so this is the, uh, one of the widest the film's been released, which is interesting because it really shows that the industry is committing to this. Um, this release it's really it's saying okay we even though there's the pandemic we're sure this film will do well which of course mm-hmm. it has and so they've opened it on a huge number of sites and so um, that's kind of interesting and then the, the legs thing when the film industry describes a movie as being leggy 
uh, it means exactly what you said. It'll, it'll run and run. So right. normally, the opening weekend is where you earn most of your money. And then the drop between the first weekend and the second weekend is can be 60 70% without there being a problem. Like if it's a really terrible movie, it might be 90% drop or whatever. But um, previously, the films that have uh, previously had like what we thought of as the, the smallest drop were Frozen 2, which dropped mm-hmm. by 34%, and Shrek 2, which dropped by 33%. But this one has dropped by 29%. So it's still, in its second week, it's still making a lot of the money it made in its first week, which is unusual. Right. And yeah, and it reflects the fact, well, it reflects the fact there's no other big films out yet. Jurassic World wasn't out at that point. Um, but also that the reviews have been strong and it actually lives up to the hype. So that's really impressive. That's probably the more, I, I'm more impressed by that than I am by how big it opened. Because how big it opened is more to say, this is what we as the industry expect it to be. Right. But the drop between the, the first and the second weekend is more about what the audiences have said to each other on Monday and Tuesday over the virtual water cooler. Actually, no, you sh- and I've heard that a lot. I haven't seen it yet, but a lot of friends have been like, oh, no, you should go and see it. It's quite good. That's, you know, more valuable as a kind of um, test for whether the film is a success, I think, personally. That's really interesting. I might want to go and see it. Yeah, I mean, there is, there is you shouldn't, I mean, I, I don't think this is likely to happen, but there has, there might be. In theory, it could be pulled from cinemas. It's not going to, but it could be because the family of the person that wrote the original article that the original Top Gun was based on is now suing Paramount this week, <gasps> saying that they didn't that they no longer have the copyright. Oh. So they didn't steal it through some phishing scam like the NFT thing. Um, so the original Top Gun was was uh, an adaptation, all legal, from an article called Top Guns. And so they got the permission to, to do that, and they made mm-hmm. Top Gun. And then uh, the family of the author, I think the author's passed, has said that it expired a couple of years ago. And the only reason I bring it up is because it's an interest. I think, I mean, probably it'll get thrown out. I don't think Paramount are likely to have got this wrong. <laughs> It seems so unlikely that they that they haven't considered this because it was mm-hmm. also being discussed a, a couple of years ago. And Top Gun Maverick's been a, they thought it was going to be released a couple of years ago as well. So it's been around for a while. But it, the timing is the bit that I wanted to bring it up for because let's say that you think you have a case, yeah. or even that you're just ballsy enough to declare you have a case to sue a movie. You don't do it when they first announce the movie is going to happen. You don't do it when they're starting to film. You don't do it when they're editing. You wait until it's the most painful possible time. And then you say, we're suing you. And then what you're hoping they'll do is give you enough money to go away. Now, I'm not saying that's happened in this case. Maybe they do believe they have a good case. I don't know what will happen. But the timing is fascinating because this sequel has been announced many, many years ago. And so, and they could have they could have sued three or four weeks ago. But they're suing this week. Uh, and I think in part, it's just to add more pressure to Paramount to um, probably settle. I don't know. I don't know this particular case, but um, there is, you know, the bigger a movie, the more likely it is someone's going to come forward and try and sue you. So some of that money that Paramount's making has got to be put into a defense fund, even for frivolous and non-frivolous lawsuits. Wow. I I sort of hope they get the money. (laughs) (laughs) Why? Just for fun. (laughs) (laughs) You just want to see the world burn, don't you? I do. I really do. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. So we'll see what happens with that lawsuit. Yeah. Um, As I said, probably. I mean, if, if let's say that they win and it turns out that Paramount did not have the right to make Top Gun 2, I mean, somebody messed up. 
big time. I mean, times. somebody is so fired. And then Tom Cruise is going to pop round and go, so, uh, my leggy opening that you <laughs> ruined... Easy, easy Jess, easy. Uh, you, uh, We should have some words. So, yes, I... I Probably it won't go anywhere because I can't believe a parent would have got this wrong. But then again, maybe the family think they have a case. We'll see. Super interesting. (laughs) That's super interesting. Now, we don't have a listener question this week, but Brian's been sitting here, the doggy, very, Mm -hmm. very patiently and nicely. And, you know, he's not made any woofs or anything. He has told me just during this podcast that he would like to be in my film and have quite... A, you know, a leading role. No pun intended, um, obviously. So uh, if you could tell me maybe next week or something, I would like to know um, the implications of that, of having an animal in a film, um, how the, the costs, and, yeah, um, yeah I'd like to know all the, I, the budgets, and, and he would like also to have a percentage. Sure. Well, the, uh, we, I can't talk about the budgies because they're, they're smaller and cheaper. Um, I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't I don't, <laughs> I don't have the exact amounts of money off the top of my head, but I can tell you how it works. So um, obviously you can't, you can't contract a dog. So it'll be the owner that will be the person that's doing it. But in America, there, is the, um, there are quite strict rules. Whenever you have uh, an animal actor, as they're often referred to, on set, then there has to be people from the Humane Association that come along. And Peter. that's one of the... Lo- uh, no, they're, they're not humane at all. Oh. Um, no, this is, there is a particular society that is kind of like the RSP, uh, RSPCA here, um, but they certify that, you know, that's why you get that thing at the end of a movie, that no animals were harmed during the making of the movie. Oh. Um, that happened because that, that is not just something they claim. That's something that is actually protected. And so to get the right to be able to say that and to have it sort of certified by the organization, you need to have them on set. There are strict rules. There are hours they can work. Um, and this came about because there were deaths in early movies. A lot of westerns, and I think the original Ben Hur, horses died, and you know there was lots of situations um, where animals were harmed. And so then the Humane Society come up, come up with a system where you have to, and it can be quite expensive um, and awkward as well because like if you're feeding bugs to a, a lizard, the bugs have to have died naturally. Oh, and so there might be awkward thing you know because everything's an animal you know everything that's an animal is protected in, in equal ways so yeah so you, brian would have you'd probably want to if we were proper producers we'd probably want to go through an animal handler and yeah. we might also want to if we're being really on the ball and right on we would want to know how the, the dog was trained because you mm-hmm. can train animals through pain and and you know being cruel about it or you can you know train them more ethically and he's had uh, a lot of positive reinforcement and press well that's important he's went to therapy and he's had treats and been told he's a good boy but not spoiled yeah um well Well, i I mean i was making a film a while ago we had one of the horses from gladiator which i was very very excited to meet you know very famous and um the film i was making the people i'm making it for was an animal rights charity and one of the concerns we had was that we had to try and work out how the horse was trained because it's an older horse now and so it would have been trained 20 years ago mm-hmm. and quite possibly it would have been trained it, it would i don't think it was in this case but it could have been trained via cruel methods of training and so it's gets really complicated as you can imagine and in the end the, the producer turns to the director and says do we really need the dog in there does brian really need to be in there i mean like how to what degree oh and he's so, integral can't be a puppet or anything can't be cg because that's no. more expensive, but maybe easier to control. Mm. No, no. He looks like a puppet, but it's no, but no, no CGI. No, it has to be him because he's got a very specific singing voice. 
Well, what I'm thinking is because this is an audio only podcast and because I'm learning a lot about you, Jess. I'm not sure there is a dog. So no, I'm actually is. thinking this might be invisible with you just making noises. So no, that never. seems a lot cheaper all of a sudden. I can't, I can't get him to bark on command. I've not trained him. Well, good, because that would have been cruel. Well, you and your imaginary dog, Jess, can be in the film. We're just going to pay you, but you know the dog's there as well. Lovely. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> I think. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, what a lovely episode. If you have enjoyed today's very explicit... I'm so sorry, Mother. I <laughs> know oh, she doesn't listen to this. Uh, if you have enjoyed the very explicit Show Me The Money uh, today, then please give it a follow in your podcast app. Leave us, leave us a five-star review if you have time. Um, and if you have a question that you'd like answered on the show, please email us at showmethemoneypod at gmail.com. And if the reason that you haven't um, submitted a question this week is because I've insulted you with my accents. <laughs> I promise not to do them ever again. I won't. Um, so, yes, that's it. That's a goodbye from me, a goodbye from Brian, and a goodbye from the wonderful Stephen Follows. Woof, woof. Bye-bye. <laughs>